Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the farmer, and this is my 15th entry. I pledge to be silent until I see and understand. That pledge is very important to me. Maybe I came off a little distant while taking it. I'm sorry. It was the nerves. When you asked everyone to leave the cone and wanted me to stay behind with you, I knew I was about to learn something that could change my life. So please don't misunderstand. I have no regret about speaking out during your first sermon or about admitting that I feel guilty. No regret whatsoever. I knew I had to face the truth. I knew I had to deal with what was going on in, inside of me. It's not normal to wake up every day feeling like I've just committed some horrible crime. I have to find a way to get rid of this stone I'm carrying in my stomach all day. That's why I raised my hand. Not because I killed the entertainer, but because I feel like I did. After everyone had left the cone and the two of us were alone, you slowly closed the door. With your back still turned towards me, you said, The burden you carry is very old. The day you woke as the farmer, it was already inside of you. You turned around and waited for me to say something. I, sh I should have. I'm sorry. I was, I was overwhelmed. Like I said. You asked me if I, if I knew where my burden comes from. Where the guilt comes from and I shook my head. While you walked back into the, the origin room, you explained that I have forgotten. You said, these feelings are remnants of lives lived before you arrived here. I nodded as if I understood. You asked me if I have compulsive thoughts or dreams that stay with me during the day. I shook my head, but that was a lie. I knew exactly what you meant. But I was hesitant to tell you about what happened, so I, I shook my head. You sat down next to me and, and asked me again. You, you asked me if I was sure I never experienced anything like that. I shook my head again. But, but you must understand, it's, it's hard for me to talk about it. A few days ago, while I was working in the garden room, 
While my hands were pushed all the way down into the soil, the guilt almost became too much to bear. It rose up all the way into my chest. It happened suddenly without, without any warning, like a panicking. I pulled my hands back up, and when I looked down, they, they were red all of a sudden. There was blood all over them, as if I had been digging up a dead animal. I closed my eyes like a child, wanting to escape a nightmare. And when I opened them again, it was gone. My hands were, were just brown from the dirt. It took me a few minutes before I dared push my hands back into the soil. When I finally did, my heart racing, there, there was no blood. I told, I told myself it was fine. It wouldn't happen again. I, I, was, I was just tired. But right after the murder, there it was again. I wanted to change to get ready for bed. I, I picked up my jumpsuit and it was wet with blood. This time, I, I couldn't make it disappear. No matter how hard I closed my eyes, it never went away. You can still see the stain on the back of my jumpsuit. I didn't say anything, but still, you understood I was struggling. You smiled your, your comforting smile at me, and you told me that the, the, the carrot plant is your favorite plant in the garden room. You asked me if, if I liked them also. I nodded. You told me to imagine I was looking over the plants. If you would look at one carrot plant, you said, and try to figure out why it is thriving or withering, you could spend the rest of your life studying that one plant, but you would never understand until you started looking at the rest of the carrots and the rest of the garden room. There might have been a carrot plant before that one that left the soil barren. Or there might be another root vegetable growing just below the surface that is sucking the soil dry. If we wither, if guilt eats away at our roots, the only way to get rid of it is by understanding where the guilt comes from. By remembering what happened to make you feel that way. You asked if I understood. I can help you remember, you said. The DECA symbol can show you the way. I nodded nervously again, and you smiled at me to try and calm me down. Then you told me about the pledge. You told me that the conversation we were having was meant to change the way I see this world. That's why I was to take the pledge of silence. I would need to take the time to just work and think, let the truth come to me. I agreed without any hesitation. Technically, I had already gone silent by then. You picked up your instructions from the console behind you and started telling me what was inside, the lines written by the priest before you and the one before him, about the lives we have already lived and the lives we have forgotten. You read to me about how we play a different role each time we start over, uh, and how it is possible to slowly go up through the triangle, one life at a time, all the way to becoming a priest and remembering everything. Before I took the pledge, you told me to stand up and you gave me your instructions. Read the first page out loud, you said, and remember the words forever. So I did. Death is merely a door. Death is merely a curtain. Some will remain amongst the lowest four as if born into inherent burden, 
But if too many souls get stuck, and if the instructions become uncertain, remind them that death is merely a door. And remind them it will not unburden. And remind them it will not unburden. My son is a natural-born farmer, one of the best I've ever seen. But that is the one thing, the only thing, I couldn't allow him to become. That's a hefty burden to carry as a father. Being forced to stop your son from becoming the man he is. My boy didn't understand. Of course he didn't. Each day I spent trying to get him interested in anything else, any other profession. He would just work our land more, read more about farming, spend even less time making friends. The only thing he wanted to do was become a farmer. But like I said, it wasn't an option. He would never be able to take over the business and I would never be able to tell him why. There was one time when he was 12 or 13 years old when the truth almost came out. Me and him and his mother were sitting out on the porch together. It had been a busy day, and we were just sitting there enjoying the sunset. But then, suddenly, in the distance, the neighbors drove by. They rode these black quad bikes with their produce on the back. They were all completely dressed in black, wearing black beanies. Sandra knew who they were. She knew all about it, but our boy didn't. He sat up straight, pointing at them. It was menacing seeing them ride along the horizon over our hills, like the four horsemen making their rounds before the final curtain. Of course, he asked me who those men were, my boy, and I simply called them the neighbors. The neighbors who lived in the forest next to our land, the forest he was never allowed in. I had made my deal with the neighbors when I was young and stupid and desperate. They had shown up at exactly the right moment. Sandra and I had just bought the farm, but it was in bad shape. And there were deals with the seed producers I wasn't aware of, patent deals. We would never be able to keep ourselves afloat. So I decided to rent a patch of land to the horsemen, allowing them to build their drugs lab in the woods. Sandra and I had to carry all the risk. If we ever got caught, it would all seem like it was our operation. But uh, we agreed because it paid very good money, and it would only be for two years. After two years, they would disappear. That was the deal. But of course, they never disappeared. I had made a deal with the devil. More and more black horsemen drove in on their quad bikes every day, with barrels full of chemicals strapped on the back. Their lab kept growing, and they ruined the land with it. In the meantime, my boy also grew. He grew into a huge man, and by that time, he was spending his days either working the land or going to church. There was nothing else in his life, just farming and the gospel. 
The longer I kept refusing to give him the family business, the harder he kept working for my approval. I tried to save him, but instead I pushed him deeper into our mess. I was trapped. I couldn't throw the neighbors out because they would out me or kill all of us. I couldn't sell the farm because it was a criminal enterprise now. And most of all, I couldn't allow my son to get involved in the business because the second it became his, he would be a criminal. And no one would believe he had no idea of the huge drug complex on his property. A deal with the devil is hard to break. One day, my boy came walking in the house, sat me down and said, Dad, I'm ready. I'm taking over the land next year. You are too old now. And he was right. I could barely work anymore. So I thought to myself, there is only one way. Only one way to allow my boy to become the farmer he is and to free ourselves from the neighbors. I had to get my old shotgun out of the basement and I had to end this deal the hard way. After taking the pledge, I walked out of the origin room and into my garden. I think you stayed behind, but I wasn't paying attention. The way the cone was illuminating the room, I had never seen it like that. The light was hitting the leaves, turning the edges golden, showing the complex structure of, of its grains. Structures that must have been forming long before the ten of us even existed. And the light was drawing shadows on the soil boxes, revealing my work, the planting and the harvesting, the traces left by my hands. But also the traces left by farmers that came before me, the ones that had put the soil boxes there in the first place. In that moment, I was so mesmerized by by my, my new understanding of the world, I was sure everyone would see what I saw, just like that. So I took the elevator back down to meet with the group, feeling at peace and optimistic about the future. Everyone was waiting for me at the dinner table. They were <laughs> curious to hear what had happened, but of course I, <laughs> I couldn't tell them. So when someone spoke to me, I, I simply replied with my, my pledge, and I smiled at them to try and show them something good was happening. But the cook wasn't having it. I should have known. She won't allow things to change. Frustrated, she turned to you when you walked in behind me. She wanted to know what you had done to me and what you planned on doing to the others. She kept calling you the Revenant. You calmly explained how you would offer answers to anyone who has questions. She started calling you a liar and accused you of feeding on our guilt. You ignored her like we all should, and you invited the rest of the group to join you whenever they felt ready. 
You tried to end the conversation that way, but the cook wasn't going to let the truth win that easy. She invited everyone to join her instead. She started a second group on the spot, an imaginary group, one that wouldn't accept any kind of ancient knowledge, one that would start all over again. You tried to make her change her mind, politely, but once that girl starts disappearing into her imaginary world, no one can pull her back. So I got up and I cornered her. I didn't say a word. I never broke my pledge. I just made it very clear that I was able to physically stop her from tearing this place apart, if I had to. The cook was afraid. She looked at me with big watery eyes as I approached her. She knows what I am capable of. But you put your hand on my back and I knew that meant you wanted me to stop. You didn't want me to intervene. I hope that means you have a plan. I hope that means you know how to bring her to repent. Because our group is, is being torn. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The teacher decided to join the cook's resistance. This was to be expected. The cook is her friend. But still, it made me nervous. Her decision meant the world is officially split. The cook has a following now. The leader decided to join you. He took the only true pledge. It surprised me. I thought he still had his doubts. And today, the fixer decided to take the pledge as well. I was watering the carrots while you two were talking. I was so caught up in my work, I hadn't even noticed him walking up to the cone. Afterwards, he came looking for me to tell me about it. He started talking about your instructions and the DECA symbol. He was so happy. I had to remind him he, he was to be silent. You must forgive him. He was just excited to share what he had learned. The important thing is, he joined us. People joining us is, is good news, of course, but I wasn't feeling at ease. I feared we were just at the beginning of our tearing, and I was right. At lunch, it all went sideways. First, no one talked. Everyone was quiet. You could feel the hate brewing. The two groups sat at opposite sides, the wavering leftovers in the middle. A schism. I considered leaving lunch after two bites and getting back to work. I didn't want to stay in that room, but then you got up and turned to the cook. 
What is it you hope to achieve? You asked her. She looked up and, and just stared at you in disdain for a moment. I think she considered ignoring you, but she couldn't help herself. She started ranting about how the truth is free, how it is something that is for everyone to find on their own. No one should own it. She thinks all of your theories are, are, are made up nonsense, meant to keep us calm and, and, and working hard. She even started making jokes about the sacred Deca symbol. She laughed at us. She mocked us. You are insignificant, you said to her. You are only two amongst many more. I could tell you were frustrated with her now. She also got up. Remember, she threatened, we control the food. You sat back down, smiled at her, and crossed your arms. For now you do. But it won't be long until the first harvest. And we won't need you after that. I felt proud. I felt significant. It took me a while to gather the courage. My shotgun was ready. I had cleaned it out. I bought fresh shells. I even walked over to the neighbors a few times with the gun, but I ended up just standing there for a while, looking at the red containers in the middle of my forest. In the end, it took me too long to find the courage. I had the accident before I could do it. It was a Wednesday and I was driving to the store. Halfway there, a truck drove right into my side, knocking me right out. I, I don't remember any of it. The first clear memory I have is seeing Sandra's face. She's standing over my bed and she's smiling at me, calling out my name. She's not looking well. She looks tired. Her hair is messy. I ask her where I am and she says we're in a hospital. Then I see she's wearing an orange jumpsuit. There's a DECA logo on her chest. So I ask her again, where are we? And that's when she tells me it has been three years. I've been out for almost three years. I ask her about our boy, but I already know what had happened. I can see it in her face and the orange jumpsuit tells me some more. I try to get up, but I'm not able to move my body. My boy had taken over the business after my accident, like the well-raised man he is. And of course, it was a matter of time before he discovered the neighbors and before he discovered what they were doing on his father's property. Sandra tells me he came home one day with blood all over him. He walked in staring at the blood on his hands like it had just magically appeared there. He told his mother he ran into a bunch of criminals, endangering everything his parents had built. The poor boy didn't even consider the option of us knowing all about it. And in a fit of rage, he had murdered two of the cooks with his bare hands. Sandra tried to console him. She told him it would be okay. She said they would just get out of there together. But my boy had already done what any God-fearing creature would do. He had called the cops. He had already confessed to the murders. The cops were on their way. 
With that phone call, my boy didn't just sentence himself like he thought. He had sentenced his mother and his father to a lifetime in jail for being part of the largest drug manufacturing operation in the state. And he sentenced himself to worse than that. No one would believe that he had no clue about the drugs. He had worked those lands for almost two years by then. No one would believe that he was innocent in this, that he had just acted in surprise and self-defense. No one would believe him. And by the time I woke up in that DECA hospital wing where my wife was allowed one visit a week to me, by that time, he was already on his way in some DECA prisonership. You know, the guilt that my boy has to carry with him, knowing he sentenced his parents, that was enough of a a punishment. Locking him up and sending him into space wasn't the just thing to do. He wasn't part of this. You should call his ship back. We never allowed him to see the whole truth. That afternoon, I worked the carrot plants for for hours on end. It almost became a good day. I didn't think of the cook all that much. There was only work. I wanted to get the harvest ready for you as fast as possible. And you were right. The plants were very close. After work, I went down to the entertainment room. I was tired. I recited the verses from your instructions in my mind, and I thought about the carrots that wither and the ones that grow. I sat down and I tried to clear my mind. I wanted to fall asleep, but then it came to me. The realization. There was only one thing the cook could do. To keep her group from falling. I barely remember getting up and walking out of the entertainment room. I can't remember getting into the elevator. I do remember the doors opening and seeing the teacher. She looked up from behind one of the soil boxes. Her eyes filled with regret when she saw it was me. She had ruined two crates of vegetables already. She had randomly pulled them out of the soil and stomped on them. Then I saw the cook. She was on the other side. She looked up, and there was no regret. She had torn almost all of the carrots from the soil. All the work I had done. All the work the farmers before me had done. I started running towards the cook. When I got closer, I saw that she wasn't alone. There was a third person there. It was the doctor. Her hands full of carrots, her arms and face covered in dirt. The doctor had silently joined the cook. She had secretly joined the resistance, without telling anyone. I... I attacked the doctor. I don't know why I chose her, why I didn't go for the cook first. Maybe because I was... I was so disappointed in her. I know I shouldn't have done anything, but I had... I had no control over it. I grabbed the doctor by the shoulders, lifted her from the ground, and threw her into the soil basin she had just destroyed. She screamed with fear. I turned towards the cook. She was next. I was going to end this war. I was going to end her. But then I saw you. 
standing in the cone store, your hand held up. Farmer, stop, you said. And I did. I was ashamed, and I was afraid you would punish me. But you were so calm, priest. You always remain so calm. I was sitting in my chair in the origin room, my head down, waiting for you to pass judgment, but, but you didn't. You promised me you were still in control. You told me the cook couldn't win in the end. It was impossible. You told me to be patient, to have faith in you. You walked up to the console in the back, the black box with the mystery symbol on it. The ones who are silent hear more, you said. And you conjured the voices, the voices from the past. They echoed throughout the garden room. At first, I didn't understand what it was. I, I didn't recognize them. I thought people were, were approaching us from another world. But then, but then I did. Those voices, they were us. It was the cook who was talking, and, and, and then the cleaner. You were playing back everybody's entries from the communication room. When we talked to ourselves in there, in the highest room of all, you are the one who hears us. Through these entries, everybody is confessing everything to you. All of their secrets, all of their fears, they're confessing them to you. It looks like the curtain will fall after all for DECA Group. After this last leak, not only DECA stock, but the entire Western market is hurting. Three more class action lawsuits have been filed, and the WDU High Congress is convening right now to vote on appropriate action against a company that, according to some, was too big to fail. The company has been caught lying about how long these experiments have been going on and about the number of slow ships heading out. But none of these findings are met with as much shock and disbelief as the details revealed on the already infamous seventh tape. As it turns out, the prisoners were never meant to reach the mining complex themselves. Many experts had already pointed out that the ships are simply too slow and the distance too great for the prisoners to reach the destination before growing old. It appears now that the group's purpose is not to work, but to bring forth the workers. I'm the farmer, and this is my 16th entry. I pledge to be silent until I see and understand. Today is a very important day. Today is the day everything came together. Your whole plan unfolded in an instant, and you broke her resistance down. This will prove a turning point. That's why I want to make sure my account of the day is comprehensive. I wake up and I feel guilt. I know I shouldn't have attacked the doctor. I'm also anxious to get back to the garden room and get to work. I'm not sure where to start after what happened there. Everything is ruined, but I tell myself I have no choice. The longer I wait with rebuilding the garden, the harder it will become to get started. And the longer we have to keep eating from those darn taps. So I force myself into the elevator and I go up there. 
The doors open, and there is the priest, standing amongst the ruined vegetables, his arms behind his back, smiling at me. I was waiting for you, he says. Follow me into the origin room. We are going to talk to the cook. We are going to cripple her. I nod and follow him towards the cone. I'm, I'm nervous again, but not about the ruined carrots anymore. I'm nervous because this is the moment his plan will be set into motion. While the two of us walk up there, he says, I told the cook we had to resolve this situation together before more people get hurt. And she agreed to talk. We step into the origin room. The cook is sitting there, smiling. The teacher to her left, the doctor to her right. The doctor avoids my gaze. She is afraid of me. After the priest closes the door, he thanks the three of them for agreeing to meet, for wanting to help him bridge the gap between the two groups. The cook wants to respond. She wants to say her part, but the priest interrupts her. His strict tone surprises me, and I take a step back without meaning to. Before you say anything, he says to her, let me lay out my demands. The three ladies are as surprised as I am. Demands, the teacher asks. What are you talking about? Yes, demands, the priest says. I demand all three of you to immediately join us. All three of you will take the pledge today. That's the only way we can guarantee your safety. The cook's smile disappears and her scars move back into their original place. She stands up from her chair and says she wants to leave. She says she won't respond to threats and the negotiation is over. She walks towards the door, but stops halfway when she notices her two allies are still in their seats. She turns around. Aren't you coming? She asks the teacher and the doctor. Slowly, she's starting to realize something has changed. The priest says, if you don't join us for your own safety, do it for the well-being of the child. I look up in surprise. And so does the cook. What child? She asks. First, she asks the priest, but then the teacher starts breathing heavily. What child? She asks her allies. Both of them look at her, afraid. What do you know about a child? She's becoming more desperate now. If you take the pledge, the priest says, we will stand strong together. The child will be safe. The group will be stable. The cook is in complete shock at this point. Slowly, she walks back up to the teacher and the doctor. Who is carrying it, she asks. The doctor sighs and says, the teacher is becoming a mother. I found out three checkups ago. Is it true? The cook asks her friend. Why didn't you tell me? I didn't tell anyone, the teacher replies. I don't know how the priest knows. I didn't say anything either, the doctor promises. My instructions don't allow me to tell anyone. The doctor turns to the teacher. I don't think we have a choice anymore, she says. We have to think about your baby. We have to make sure this place is safe for him or her. The teacher nods and looks at the cook, her former leader and friend. But the cook isn't really there anymore. She stares at the floor. It's the children, she says to herself. They are the ones that arrive. The teacher asks the cook if she is okay. 
She stands up from her seat and tries to get her friend to look at her. Are you okay? She asks again. Slowly, the cook looks up, but her gaze stops at the teacher's badges, the sex badges on her chest. And all of a sudden, she starts ripping them from her jumpsuit, tearing the fabric. It's all about the children, the cook keeps saying as, as she keeps tearing. They are the ones that arrive. And she throws the badges across the origin room floor. The doctor and I grab her and pull her away from the teacher before she can ruin the jumpsuit beyond repair. They are the ones that arrive! The cook keeps yelling, but as we drag her away, she stops fighting. There is always ten of everything, the priest says and sits down. His work is done. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.